for generations, we've seen uh, violence against Asian and Asian Americans in the United States and also throughout the world with wars and other types of uh, political interventions in in Asia. So I think for me, it was truly uh, disturbing and unsettling, but unfortunately, not surprising. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson-Edge. Today on the pod, a follow-up conversation with Dr. Rachel Endo. I spoke with Dr. Endo in the summer of 2020 about the rising tide of anti-Asian and anti-Asian American sentiment in the United States. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Endo about the March shooting in Atlanta that killed eight, including six women of Asian descent. We'll talk about how the media portrayed the alleged shooter, and we'll also talk about why racist ideas persist despite the wealth of information available to us. Dr. Rachel Endo, welcome back to Pod Defiance. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, it is good to see you. It's always good to see you, um, though I wish we were coming together to talk about different things. In many ways, you and I are going to continue our conversation we had in June of 2020, which we talked a lot about the rising tide of violence targeting uh both Asians and Asians, Asian Americans. Um, so with that, I think we should probably just get right to it. I wanted to start by talking about what happened in Atlanta at the end of March. Um, I'm wondering if we can get your reactions as you saw the news start to come in that day. I would say that it unfortunately came as no surprise because the United States has a long history of anti-Asian violence and also violence that's predicated on anti-Blackness and other types of racism. And I think for many of us, when you look on the news and you constantly see yourself and people who look, look like you as carnage, it's really unsettling. So it's not just you reacting to a national tragedy, such as the Boulder incident, where that was another mass tragedy, but then you see people who look like you and your family members, and it's it's pretty haunting. What I'll also say is that my reaction was, why is suddenly their concern about Asian Americans and the rising tide of, of racism? Because even before COVID-19 and what we saw with a lot of the anti-Asian rhetoric, Again, for, for generations, we've seen uh, violence against Asian and Asian Americans in the United States and also throughout the world with wars and other types of uh, political interventions in, in Asia. So I think for me, it was truly uh, disturbing and unsettling, but unfortunately, not surprising. I wonder, what do you make of that description that the alleged shooter was having a bad day? Um, I think that was that statement came from a sheriff's department spokesperson. And also, I wonder if we could talk a little about the broader uh, way in which we talk about people who are alleged to have committed a crime. I'm thinking of how uh, that that swimmer Brock Turner was presented in the media versus how someone who maybe wasn't white and male is is portrayed. I really appreciate that analysis because I think that this notion of the 
Atlanta shooter is having a bad day is just another example about how Asian and Asian Americans, our experiences with racism are basically erased and not taken seriously. And it's also a way to, I think, dehumanize Asian and Asian American women. And I think, too, that this notion of having a bad day, to me, it really came across as, wow, people like me don't really matter. And let me share a real quick personal story. So when I was uh, a teenager, I was actually violently assaulted in a parking lot by a white male. And luckily, there were some other people around who immediately called the police and um, had this person, they were detaining him until the police came. Fast forward to when we were in court, he didn't show up. And I remember his lawyer clearly told this judge, oh, well, so-and-so was just, you know, having basically a bad day. And he's also going to join the military. So this guy got off with not even a fine or anything like that. And so for me, uh, when I think and hear about this notion of law enforcement or people in positions of power, like them saying that someone like Robert Aaron Long is just having a bad day, that's just a form of racialized violence. That's very traumatic, I think, to many, uh, not just Asian and Asian American women, but other uh, women of color as well. And you're right, language does matter because, again, when we look at, for example, the uh, Boulder shooter, we immediately saw some commentaries and news stories about his identity and not, not about him having a bad day, but other more problematic stereotypes about um, how his identity potentially influenced this rage. And so I think, too, that when we talk about uh, violence of any type, we have to be very cautious to really name it for what it is. The violence, but also when the perpetrator is white and the victims are people like the Atlanta victims, mostly uh, Asian and Asian American women, we really have to stop using excuses and color neutral language to basically say, oh yeah, well, those types of lives don't matter. One thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is this idea of racist ideas, right? Um, and wow, they just seem to have no shelf life. Um, they're very stubborn, they hold on. Um, some of them may fade, but it, it almost seems like a lot of them just sort of adapt to the times and change their shape, but don't necessarily ever go away. And in this age of information, when you can quite literally type something into a search engine and get, uh, you can get access to scholarly articles pretty quickly um, and all kinds of information, right? How on earth is it that, um, and you're thinking that this, these ideas still persist and um, that so much of the space that's available for information is just filled with uh, either very bad information or racist stereotypes or tropes. I really appreciate that question because I think it comes down to a couple of things. Is one is that when we go through our K to 12 and even our university education, my wish is that we could not just learn about different experiences, histories, and identities, but we could also be empowered to understand how to actually critically evaluate and interpret information. Because I think a lot of times misinformation comes when we're not given the tools to really view the world as a text for which it is. And so I would say that that's one major arm of it is how can we hopefully improve the education we receive and be empowered for certain skills to help us more critically understand information and not just believe the first thing we read or, or see. 
I think the other thing too is around uh, the news media. So maybe this is something that all of us can think about. How many uh, Asian American shows do we see, sitcoms, or Beyond Crazy Rich Asians and a few other recent um, documentaries or, or movies? How many Asian Americans do we see uh, in the media as political leaders, as faculty, as leaders at universities. So in the absence of all of that, I think people tend to fill in gaps based on what they see in the media or stereotypes. And so I do think that uh, we all have some responsibility to, and it's not just about Asian Americans, I think it's about any minoritized group. What do we think we know about them? Um, how did we learn about them? And then really trying to empower ourselves to do two things. One is to learn more balanced information by and about people themselves, but also that critical lens of when we, for example, even something as seemingly innocent as a picture book, how do we really look through that through this critical lens so we can either learn information and or counteract stereotypes that are really harmful? A follow-up that to that, do does politics play a, a role in that in keeping these perceptions and these beliefs alive? Very likely, yes, because remember, since the formation of our nation state, we've had political leaders who've really capitalized on racially excluding certain people. Like, for example, uh, I come on the descendants of Japanese nationals who were legally denied citizenship in the United States until the early to mid 1950s. And so certainly there is a benefit of depicting my ancestors and even my current living relatives as as other I think that what that does is it's really interesting. It pits people against each other and also distracts from, from larger issues about. So if we can remove this notion about what are we all benefiting or gaining from, for example, racist policies, I think the the appeal of politicians using this type of rhetoric is it's profitable, whether it's through uh, talk show radio hosts, through certain uh, media that presents certain narratives that generates anxiety, that um, generate cells of, of weapons and, and other types of violent instruments. I think all these things are, are profitable. And for many politicians, they do benefit from, from generating that anxiety to, from, at least from my perspective, to continue to uh, divide people rather than uniting them and, and starting to look at uh, reconciliation. So one thing that I think we've seen after tragedies like this and other tragedies, it feels like there, there's, there's always, there's always, there's never an absence of tragedy uh, lately. Um, outcomes, what I, what I imagine to be a, like a in sort of in good spirit, um, usually some sort of campaign online to rally people around common cause or to support a community like the hashtag stop Asian hate, um, popped up not long after what happened in Atlanta. And if I'm being honest, like, you know, a while ago when, when we first started to see the, um, before this, this event, you know, I think I, it was something like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do that on my social media page. And over time I've started to wonder, like, I, I just don't do it anymore because I just didn't know what on earth that was achieving. Um, um, and it could be achieving something. The the and that's what I want to ask you. What do we make of these campaigns that um, pop up after these events? Very complex and wonderful question. 
I would say that you might remember after the murder of George Floyd, there were similar kind of BLM hashtags and media campaigns. And so I think there's different perspectives on these types of, of, for example, social media and other awareness campaigns. One is it actually does raise awareness. And I think that many people are on social media. I happen to not be, but I know that most other people are. So that's one way of raising awareness. And for people who may not have never even thought of these issues. So for example, that uh, campaign came out and I actually had people who never actually reached out to me before say things like, wow, I didn't realize that Asian and Asian Americans have experienced hate crimes and racism. And so I felt like saying, so where have you been for the last, wherever old this person is? But again, that's one thing is without that, they wouldn't have reached out and maybe thought more critically about the impact. Like a lot of the BLM activists also pointed out, it also can come across as kind of performative. And also, like you said, if people only do that, sharing out these hashtags or or raising awareness, but not doing anything else like taking action, maybe making restitution if they've created harm, then that's also a problem. So I would just say that from my perspective, it's both and. So use your social media and your networks to raise awareness and to educate others and also stretch yourself and challenge yourself to do better, to be better, whether that's through self-learning, perhaps educating others in other spaces, supporting uh, BIPOC-owned businesses, not being a bystander and intervening. So there's this whole array of things that I think we can do. So I wouldn't completely write that off as unhelpful. This is kind of a personal question, but I wonder how you feel or how you respond uh, when people reach out to you and they might not even be people you know very well, maybe you don't talk to them very often, but when something like what happens in Atlanta happens, when people reach out to you and they ask like, how do you want to, how do you feel, you know, tell me what's going on. How do you feel about that? Because in my mind, I could see that as being uh, kind of strange. I mean, it, it, it probably is, is well-intentioned, but I imagine it also could be very painful in some ways. I'll just start by saying everyone's different. So some people appreciate that and, and want that connection and appreciate having the validation and others might take offense to that, right? So I think that what I would just say is for me, people having to really assess their relationship with with the person. So for example, after George Floyd was murdered, I wasn't calling my friends who are African-American and Black to, quote, check in on them because I think that to your point, trying to be sensitive about not re-traumatizing people or putting all this extra labor on them to um, educate me or to, to make me feel better about myself. But instead, I think that through the relationships that we already have, when, when and if people bring it up on their own, that can be just a space to say, wow, uh, how can I support? Is there anything that I can do? And so I think that uh, that's where it can become more helpful. But again, everyone's different. For me, it was interesting when, you know, to your point, some people I haven't heard from in five years after the Atlanta massacre were texting me about, oh, well, what's going on in your mind? And I thought, hmm, well, and this person was white, I felt like saying, so if you just saw people like a bunch of blonde white women killed and murdered, how would that make you feel, right? What would be going on in your head? But it's a little bit different because that doesn't usually happen. 
there was this whole debate about whether or not what happened in Atlanta was a hate crime, right? Um, so my question is, does it matter if it's officially labeled as a hate crime? If all the people who were murdered all belong to one marginalized group. So that's, that seems uh, motivated by hate to me. Um, so I want to talk about the importance of this designation. Um, you know, if I'm a member of that community, maybe I feel very differently, like this needs to be officially labeled. Um, yeah. So what do you, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I would say one thing is that when we look at how a hate crime is even defined, it's from a very problematic frame point about often it's kind of an individually moted incident based on one person's view of perhaps a protected class identity like people of color or religious minorities and so forth. And so I think that problematic definition of hate crimes and also the fact that it's also underreported, particularly for Asian and Asian Americans, is something that we all have to think about because to me, yes, this was uh, a hate crime. And like you said, when there's a pattern, either through who's the victims or even throughout some of the, what I call cold words of what the shooter was saying, he was talking about uh, having, a, I think he said he was a sex addict, right? Well, for Asian and Asian American women, we are fetishized and sexualized, right? So to me, that was immediate code word about, wow, he clearly saw these people as based on their identities and decided that they were disposable. And you're right, language does matter. And I think that, again, the challenge I think is that there's certain, there's certain benefits and protections when law enforcement or when certain reporting agencies don't classify something as a hate crime. Because if you think about it, there's a lot of, of these types of incidents going around that are unreported or underreported day on day, um, daily. So what would happen if we had to admit that we do actually have a problem with racism at a systemic level in the United States? I think that would be really difficult for a lot of institutions to reckon with. I'm glad you brought up sex addiction, because when I first heard that, I immediately thought of that trope of massage parlors that are owned by Asian or Asian American uh, women in particular as being sort of front for sex work. And so when I heard that, I, I couldn't, I didn't quite understand why I needed to know that information. Um, it didn't really feel all that relevant, especially considering that stereotype that is so per per pervasive, excuse me. I wonder if you can talk about this idea um, that lives in our culture about massage parlors and about the stereotypes that exist about um, Asian women and Asian American women. Absolutely. And I think we can see, particularly within the scholarly knowledge base about the wars in the Pacific, about, again, and this is a common narrative of, particularly when you think about uh, servicemen coming to different uh, Asian nation states, and there was kind of this notion about Asian women being sexualized and fetishized and uh, and treated as sex workers or engaged in that manner, right? So there is a history of that type of uh, what we like to call gendered orientalism of 
of that type of narrative. And so you're, you're correct is when uh, Robert Aaron Long started to talk about his sex addiction, it almost became a way for him to try to absolve himself from any responsibility for, for such a horrific act. And you're right too, is that even for, for me, when people started to connect with me, the first thing out of some people's mouths, mostly white males was like, well, but they work for like a massage parlor as if th that was something that was illicit or, or like you said, sexualized. And it's like, well, but these lives were lost and it doesn't matter actually, even if they were sex workers, which I believe they were not, that doesn't matter. They were still shot and killed because of, of who they were and what they did. Going forward, what, uh, what does success look like, right? What is improvement um, for, you know, the, the, for maybe your, maybe you'll speak about your individual experience as an Asian American woman. How is that, how is um, Dr. Rachel Endo's life in America uh, become easier, better? If, if we go forward, what needs to happen? The million dollar question. I think I would start by saying that if we look at the bigger picture, like for me, what progress and success would look like is really first, I think that it's not just about Asian and Asian Americans, but it's about the liberation and the freedom of particularly our Black, Indigenous, and Latinx and other Pacific Islander folks of color. So progress, true progress can't actually happen until everyone is is free and doesn't have to worry about their their safety and security at a fundamental level. So that to me is going to be one sign of progress. But through to do that, what do we need to do? We need to change not just laws and policies, but also attitudes, beliefs, values, and ideologies. And that's where things get a little bit more complicated. But I'll give you maybe a few thoughts about what progress would look like. So I talked earlier about K-12 and also university education. So we really have to do a lot better about teaching young people as well as their educators about, hey, there's actually, uh, America is not just about one story, but many stories. And often the, the stories are things that we don't read about or have heard about. And sometimes they're really uncomfortable and they're stories of violence. We can't avoid that. And kids, as you know, as a, as a parent, kids are smart. We can't, shield them from or immune them from these violent stories. That's just part of our history's fabric, fabric. And we need to do a better job educating kids. And as I mentioned earlier, this notion about empowering them so they can also stand up for not only themselves, but for other people. So that way, at some point, my hope is that we don't have to see stories like this in the news media time and time again. Another example that comes to mind here, very specific to UW-Tacoma. So I'm in the chancellor's cabinet and there's 20 members. I'm the only Asian American woman on that 20 member cabinet. And so that's something I think about all the time is, wow, I think true progress is when I'm not the only one. And not just for me as an Asian American, but when we look at other particularly underrepresented uh, BIPOC folks, we need to see more people at all levels of leadership on the faculty leading our institution so that way people like me don't always become a problem or seen as the other. So that's another thing is we really need to attend to optics because optics matter for our community and for our students and for our campus. And I think the, the final thing I'll say is that in terms of what will progress look like, 
for me, true progress might be a day where I can actually bring my full authentic self to the workplace. And I can also see other folks, faculty, staff, and students bring their authentic selves to the workplace. And we can actually do the things that are really important for the mission of our campus to really advance our campus as a place where all are welcome. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Oh, 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 o